Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. <laughs> Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 321st episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most successful and respected producers in Hollywood. A Golden Globe, Producers Guild, Visual Effects Society, and Annie Award winner, and two-time Oscar nominee, whose credits include 1990's Dances with Wolves, 1991's The Addams Family, 1995's Toy Story, 1999's Tarzan, 2006's Over the Hedge, 2009's The Last Station, and all three installments of the How to Train Your Dragon trilogy, the 2010 original, the 2014 sequel How to Train Your Dragon 2, and 2019's How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World. A trailblazer, regularly included on the Hollywood Reporter's Women in Entertainment Power 100 list, who has been described by Jeffrey Katzenberg as one of the, quote, most accomplished and prolific filmmakers working in feature animation today, close quote, and who has worked at all three of the biggest film animation companies, Disney, Pixar, and DreamWorks. The former president of feature animation at DreamWorks Animation, and still a top producer there, who will be attending the 92nd Academy Awards on February 9th as a nominee for the Best Animated Feature Oscar, Bonnie Arnold. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 65-year-old and I discussed how she managed to break into the business from her hometown of Atlanta, how, quite by accident, she wound up shifting her focus from live-action films to animated films, why she has devoted a decade of her life and career to the How to Train Your Dragon franchise, even while, for a time, also serving as head of the studio behind it, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Bonnie Arnold, one of the nicest people in Hollywood and someone I met when she saved me from the bears of Telluride one night when I was lost and wandering the streets. Thank you very much for coming in. Good to have you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, so It is scary with Telluride when it's completely dark and you don't know where you're going. <laughs> oh, believe me. I, I, I thought I was finished, so I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> that was back in 2011. So was it really? Wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me tell you, we normally begin here just by covering a few basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your parents do for a living? I was born in Atlanta, Georgia, and that's where I grew up. My mother was a school teacher and became an administrator for the public school system, and my father was in the um, retail business, He was, but he did uh, liquor, wine and spirits and stuff. Mm-hmm. He was a wine connoisseur, actually. And you had siblings? I do. I have a brother and sister who oh. both still live in Atlanta. So 
growing up, how big a part of your life were the movies? Ah, really big. I love the movies. My parents were both born during the Depression, and that was the thing that you did was go to the movies. So I think my mother, I was the oldest child. I think my mother had me just to have a movie buddy. (laughs) (laughs) So she would take me to movies all the time. And all my friends remember that every birthday, we celebrated every birthday party of mine was going to a movie. So it was either... Um, I just remember, I'm sure younger it was different, but I, I remember as a, you know, like an adolescent, it was either an Annette Funicello, Frankie Avalon movie or an Elvis movie. Okay, good. <laughs> and good that's ones. where we'd have the parties in the movie theater. Yeah. Well, and, and did I hear that your uncle was uh, in the oh, business? My uncle, that's right. My uncle was a projectionist. He, did, he That wasn't his profession, but he did that from the time that he was um, a young man. He was he learned the, like a, like a trade and did that kind of on the side. But yes, he was a projectionist. So when you headed off to the University of Georgia, what did you study and what did you imagine you would do with your life after graduation? Well, you know, when I was growing up, uh, film schools there wasn't like a film school on every corner, <laughs> so they weren't ubiquitous. I, as much as I love the movies, I never really imagined myself working in the movies. There wasn't Entertainment Tonight and those kind of shows where you really had a picture of what went on behind the scenes. So I actually, when I was in high school, was during kind of, interestingly, Watergate was going on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I liked history and politics and journalism. And um, that's where I kind of, I thought it it just interested me. So Mm -hmm. that's really, I went to school and thought I was going to be studying. I mean, I did. I studied journalism. And that's what I liked. Again, I didn't take away anything from the love of, of movies. But I, again, I just didn't com- completely understand what kind of career you could have in that business at that time. And that was where even I, after University of Georgia when you graduated because you then go off for, I guess it was a one-year master's program at BU. And I think here's where the crucial thing happens, right? You have a, I don't know if it was a paid internship or an internship, but what work did you do on the side during that year in the Boston area? Well, I think I ended up going to BU. I, I, honestly, I went to, I wanted to go to B- Boston. I wanted to go there as an undergrad. And honestly, my parents just said they couldn't afford to send me there mm-hmm. for college. Mm-hmm. But I was able to somehow get a, a they had a year program, a continuing in, in, in journalism. I was quite young. I was just 21. And I thought, okay, this could be an interesting thing. I was able to get some kind of scholarship money. And I went up there, and through the school, I got an internship at WGBH, which is their big public television station. And two things happened there. One, that was sort of my first glimpse into working at a place where I started to understand kind of a little bit of what production was about. Obviously, they did TV and radio. And I, the woman that I worked with was producing a radio series on popular culture for National Public Radio. But she was the producer. So that was really, her name was Barbara Sirota, and I give her credit. It was the first time I saw, like, what the producer does. And it didn't completely connect them, but I, she was actually a role model and became a friend for many years. And I, I saw kind of the activity when I would go to the station once or twice a week to do this internship. I started to learn see a woman running the show there, so yeah. to speak, or at least the production that I was on. And I learned little skills. I actually learned how to cut audio tape. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not fine cut, yeah, but yeah. I, that's part of my job. And, you know, cut out stuff in the audio tape of the interviews that she did that, would, that actually made this uh, radio documentary, which is kind of interesting. But I came back to Atlanta after that, again, thinking I would still go into the in journalism, more maybe in news or broadcasting. But again, was looking for also work 
at the same, you know, mm-hmm. a paid job yeah, at that time. <laughs> My parents would go to work, get, get paid, get some income. Right. And so I actually went to the Georgia public television station and they connected me there with a guy who was had gotten a grant, which was sort of the way you got these things made in public television at that time, to do actually a, a series of films for this thing out of public broadcasting called American Playhouse. Yes. And actually it was, I guess we call it now a TV movie. Yeah. For the first season of this thing called American Playhouse, which was drama. Your uh, association there was as a publicist. Right. I mean, so the guy, so this guy, in high, it was a paid internship, yeah. which I thought was just a great thing. I think I was making $100 a week. <laughs> I thought that was big. Right, right, right. <laughs> $100 a week. And, um, From Atlanta. In or, Atlanta. Okay. In Atlanta. So he had, so he was based there. And um, he had gotten a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and some independent financing to do, I think it was two films, actually films. Again, now you'd call them TV movies for this series, this new series. And he had a very low budget, but actually hired me to write the, basically write, I I was kind of his girl Friday, (laughs) but also write the production notes. I mean, because of my journalism background. And I kind of, there was, again, another woman who was working at the time at the public television station who was the head of PR. And she kind of took me under her wing and kind of, her name was Bonnie Hathaway, another Bonnie. I I didn't very, I never run into a lot of Bonnies, (laughs) but again, these, it's interesting when I was sort of thinking back about which women, you know, there were a lot of men who mentored me, but then there were some interesting women along along the way. way. So Bonnie Hathaway sort of took me under her wing and kind of showed me a lot about what that was about. And I got to go. So that movie was set to film on location in New Hampshire and Vermont. And I got to go up there for a week to do the interviews with the key cast and the principals. And I got that's the first time actually I got to go on a movie set. And what, what do you remember about that? And that was day? like, that changed my life. I mean, I walked in the production office on the first day and I just like knew that's where I was going to belong. I mean, I loved it. I just was, I went to the movie set and the, and it was small, very small, small, you know, small potatoes compared to certain things, you know, what, what would be, mm-hmm. but it was just like, I knew immediately that's what I wanted to do. Uh, so, and I, I didn't know, ex- you know, exactly how I was going to do it, but I just said, okay, this is it. And I was about, I guess I was about... 23 or 24. What do you think you were responding to? I don't know. It was just the hub of activity <laughs> and all the, all the stuff. And then, like I say, it was really my first look into what it took to actually make a movie. And like I say, I was a movie lover, but I just somehow had never really understood that part of it. So I saw that and then I kind of watched what the producers did. But I also was interested in other things, like the makeup and hair people and wardrobe and to be honest, that's what the women did. Yeah, yeah. It was makeup and hair, wardrobe. You worked in the production office, mm-hmm. possibly maybe a location manager or right. something like that. But that week or 10 days that I spent up there, I kind of actually got to, I did what I was supposed to do, but I also got to tag along mm-hmm. and just really observe what was going on on the movie set. So then it's back to Georgia. And I guess just to set the, the scene of, in terms of what year roughly are we talking about? Very early 80s. Very early 80s. So that's relevant, I guess, only because of a couple things that are going on in Georgia at the time. I know you've talked about the fact that that was where suddenly Burt Reynolds wanted to do all of his movies, which were, you know, I guess he was like the biggest thing going at that point. And then also not long after that is when Coca-Cola bought Columbia and Coca-Cola's in Atlanta. So it seemed like maybe there would have been more things going on there than ever before and so is that why you, I believe, when you get back to Atlanta, connect with the Georgia Film Commission? Yes. That's kind of, 
I'm trying to remember exactly how it happened, but there was there was a there was a very you know very small but sort of thriving film community in Atlanta. Obviously, their nut, their bread and butter were things like you know industrials and commercials and things like that. But they did have you know film projects that came to Georgia to film. It was a non-union right to work state, which is a big th- big deal then. Atlanta's always had the biggest airport in that area in terms of bringing people in and out and equipment and that kind of thing. So that, I know this all adds up, believe it or not, to make it an interesting place to be. You know, there was some TV being done there, and they had a small little crew there, you know, people that you could hire as locals, which again, when you're trying to, you know, save money. So I actually worked on a couple of very small independent film productions. One was for... um, I think it was just, like I say, just sort of independent movies mm-hmm. that, that didn't really have, wouldn't have had any distribution um, that raised some money. But I, I got, I was actually hired as a production office coordinator, but was quickly promoted to the second AD uh, <laughs> on, on, a, one of these on a very small thing. But boy, yeah. I learned, you know, I learned. I, I mean, I did everything from haul the coolers around the set <laughs> to, you know, signing in the actors right. to actually drop, you know, you know, we didn't even have transportation. Right. <laughs> we had to go. I mean, I had to actually go in the morning and pick the actor up and bring him to the set and those kind of things. So it was really a great learning experience they got for me. Yeah. yeah. And then and then actually worked with another one, a woman that this small company hired to produce. It was actually she was out of New York. Woman named Elaine Sperber, who I'm still friendly with, That's great. and she was a great producer. Mm-hmm. And I just thought at that time, I want to be just like Elaine. <laughs> and I think that's when it started to connect. That when I saw, especially when I worked for Elaine on the movie set. I mean, yeah. she was what I would call the what now they would call like sort of the creative producer. Mm-hmm. And but but she also had line responsibilities because mm-hmm. it was so small, meaning managing the budget and the schedule and everything. And it was like a three or three and a half week shoot, six days a week. And, you know, she was amazing. So I really, like I said, I want to be just like Elaine. So just can we pause for a second and ask you to kind of familiarize listeners with the hierarchy of producers? Because we know there's line and associate and trade up. Just what what's the progression generally? Then we'll talk about how you specifically moved up. Right. It's changed a lot because it takes (laughs) it's so now takes a village to get a movie made. But the simplest way, I think, to explain it is. I think even as we were trying to figure out who does what, I call it the capital P producer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The Mm -hmm. capital P producer is really responsible for everything. I mean, meaning not um, necessarily, sometimes it's actually raising the money. It could be managing the money, but really just making sure that the movie is delivered both creatively and financially. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, the simplest way to say that. But under that, there, there are people that support that effort. And that could be the person who actually runs the set and makes sure all that happens is really usually the production manager. But sometimes that can be the line producer. Sometimes those people get an associate producer credit or a co-producer credit or even an executive producer credit. So those are where those titles um, can mean sort of different things. And often an executive producer, isn't that just sort of an honorary title for a person putting up money? Usually it could be the money. Sometimes it could be they have the rights to the material Mm -hmm. or they've brought a a piece of the talent to it, like a key talent to the whole thing. Or maybe, you know, that or maybe they had the rights to the book Mm -hmm. or so, again, it depends on the level of involvement. But that's like I say, an executive producer usually has something. But it feels like these days a lot of things need to people need to bring pieces of it. Rarely 
does one person do it all? Right. So I guess that's, we were talking from the top of the ladder of producers towards the bottom though, mm-hmm. might be the production office coordinator, which is what you were on The Slugger's Wife, a movie that came out in 1984, produced by Ray Stark. But that was a very important one that, you know, even if you're starting out on the lower end, what came of that? My job on that one, that was my really my first big Hollywood movie. And I like to say that that person in the production office, you just re, you got to really make sure the trains run on time. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. That everybody's supposed, you know, is where they're supposed to be at the right moment. And just um, a little bit of, you know, you're overseeing travel, people coming in and out, and equipment that needs to be in the right place in the right time. You're supporting the, again, the production manager or line producer who, you know, in, in every way. But the interesting thing that, again, as you said before, that was right after the Coca-Cola company bought Columbia Pictures. And so one of the first things they did was bring this big production to Atlanta so it could be done near the corporate headquarters. So everybody in the, in, at Coca-Cola, I think, in my opinion, could see what they bought. Yeah, right, <laughs> Here's right. what you've invested in. <laughs> Here's how it works. Um, because it was Ray Stark was the producer and Hal Ashby was the director. And my dear friend Caleb Deschanel was the mm-hmm. cinematographer. And uh, it was just, there was really a lot of talent. Quincy Jones was, did the music. So, I mean, it was just the editor was Margaret Booth. Who had yeah, worked birth on Birth of a Nation? Or birth of a Nation. She worked on Gone with, with the Wind. Right. <laughs> I mean, wow. that was crazy. Wow. She was like, I think she was in her nineties or wow. something, and so it was just had this really stellar, at least for me, you know, old, you know, Hollywood royalty type of people involved, and in. it was so interesting. And how did you even get that position? I, you know, I believe it was through again. I had made you know friends with the film office, yeah. so they and they couldn't hire you, but then. When something like a show like that would come in town, they would put you forth, honestly, to be interviewed or right. something. And I had done a number of these small pictures, yeah. and I guess I had a good interview. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I would, but the, the thing about it was, I got to actually work very closely with Ray Stark. And with, tell people who, if they don't know, like he was a very big deal. Oh, he was a, at that time, he was a very powerful producer. He produced Funny Girl, of course. His mother, he's famously his mother-in-law was Fanny Bryce, Mm -hmm. a famous actress and showgirl from way back when. Um, Like I say, he produced a lot of movies. He had for many years a relationship with Columbia Pictures, of course, and he called the shots there. Even though he didn't run the studio, people, (laughs) Ray was powerful. He's so, he was so interesting. And I think he was tough, you know, if you were at his level. But again, I worked in the production office. He was he was great to me. <laughs> he treated me well. But you know, he was he was tough, and he had a. I think he had left Hollywood to come be a part of this on this movie, but he still had a life and all these things that he did. And so his he had like four assistants in his office <laughs> in Los Angeles. So they would constantly call me and say, we need Ray to sign a bunch of papers. We're going to send him to you and make sure he sits down and does it. And, you know, all the stuff with, that, that were part of his other part of his life other than making movies. It was very interesting. But um, Neil Simon, by the way, was the writer mm-hmm. on the on, of the movie. And um, Martin Ritt, the director, the you know well-known director, was actually going to be actually originally going to direct the movie, if I'm not mistaken. But his health was declining, to be honest, and he didn't think he could take it on. So actually, he played a role in the movie as the baseball coach. It was a movie about baseball. 
So it just so happened that Neil Simon and Marty Ritt didn't have to go to the set every day. And Neil sometimes was working on pages in his hotel room. We all kind of went to this hotel in Atlanta. So they would come down and sit in front of my desk in the production office for hours on end and regale me <laughs> while, I, while I was trying to do my yeah, work right. uh, with these great stories about Hollywood and stuff. And it was just, I mean, it was, uh, for somebody who was, you know, loved the movies and stuff, it was just like, you know, catnip. <laughs> wow. So I love that. Um, that was, again, that movie came out in 84. So obviously it was probably 83, 84 was when you were working on it. After that, was another movie called The Mosquito Coast, and I want that came out in 86, so we're talking now probably 85, 86 for the making of it. What was your first introduction to the creative talent behind that movie? Again, it was another one of those movies where they were going to film it in... It actually wasn't set in Georgia. It was set... The story, the, the first part of the story takes place in the United States. It was supposed to be in the western part, I think, of Massachusetts, but, the, but believe it or not, along the East Coast, in most of the states around, right on the East Coast, in the mountains and stuff, it kind of looks the, similar. And, oh my gosh, this is kind of a crazy story, but the producer, I believe, Jerome Hellman, mm-hmm. was friendly with the guy who was the Secretary of State, a war veteran named Max Cleland. Yeah, right. And he, likes. and he, yes, and he was, um, they brought the movie to, you know, they said we were going to film that part of the movie that was supposed to take place in Massachusetts in north part of Georgia. So my first thing was a friend of mine who was a location manager, something came up and he was supposed to take the crew on a scout. And he called me and he said at the last minute, said, can you spend five days taking this team on a scout? Of I've already scouted the locations. I just need you to drive them around and take care of them and whatever. And he said, I need you to meet them at the, he said, can you do it? Can you do it? Literally like on a Friday and I mean, I had to meet him on a Saturday or Sunday. I said, sure, whatever, you know, you need me to do. So I go to the airport and I meet them and it was Jerome Hellman, a very famous producer, produced Midnight Cowboy. Mm-hmm. It was Peter Weir, the director, Harrison Ford, who was the actor <laughs> and, and, and a lot of their crew. So they get off the plane. All these guys. And the first thing they said to me, I mean, it, you know, most people who know me know that I'm like five feet tall. <laughs> and this was, I was, I guess I was about, I was in my, you know, late 20s. Right. And they saw me. And the first thing the guy, one of the guys said to me, is, are you old enough to drive? I mean, I'm really short. <laughs> and I look young. And so I said, yeah, sure. And it was like me and a bunch of guys. So right. sure enough, I had this giant van. And it's all these men and me. And we get in the van and we literally take off from the Atlanta airport and spend five days driving around the mountains. I mean, and I'm not talking about tall mountains, but, you know, the hills of North Georgia, looking at these locations and stuff. And it was fascinating because I got they were talking about the movie. And, you know, this was the early recce, as they call it, the recce time to look at their locations and talk about what the movie would be with the production designer and the cinematographer. John Seal was the production was the cinematographer. Again, very well known guy, the production designer, the construction coordinator, you know, all the people that would come and sort of remake what this place would look like or these locations might look like to do just one little piece of filming because honestly the majority of the filming was supposed to be in Belize Mm -hmm. in Central America Mm -hmm. and um, this was just one piece but they took this part really, this was very serious thing for them. And by the end of that 
van trip with them what was, happened to you it was crazy it was crazy so they and, and so after that i guess you know i did i did a good job driving <laughs> something i didn't really learn in college but hey um but they asked me if i would work on the movie and they said they were going to keep an office they needed a base in the united states mm-hmm. and they were just going to make that base in atlanta and they were going to film this small part of the movie at the very end they were going to go to belize and do this whole all the filming and then come back to atlanta would i kind of and then the construction crew would be coming back and forth and we'd move everybody up. It, it, there was a lot of things going mm-hmm. on. Would I kind of be in the office the whole time? So I actually worked on the film and it was. This is like as a unit production coordinator. Kind of, kind of like that. Yeah. 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 And, um, you know, make, you know, again, communicating every day with Belize and making sure right. that things, you know, sometimes they would need stuff from the States and ha- help coordinate some of those kind of things. And honestly, the other producers on it were. Saul Zantz, again, another yeah. well-known, famous um, Ness, Amadeus. Yeah. So he and his nephew, Paul, were producing it. And again, Paul, somebody I still talk to, uh, keep in touch with. And anyway, it was really, like I say, unbelievable. Harrison Ford, again, at that time was like the biggest mm-hmm. movie star in the world. Mm-hmm. And the minute they found out he was coming to Georgia... The production office, most of my day was spent fielding calls about how do we, you know, where's Harrison Ford <laughs> right. going to be? And you know, he wasn't even a man, but it was kind of interesting. Well, I think these are important things. These let's talk about these early credits because, you know, it gives an idea of what a producer does. And so now that brings us to a movie that came out a year after Mosquito Coast, leader of the band in 87, because this was produced by someone who... Thanks to you, I was lucky enough to meet just at the end of his life a few years ago, but really a guy who had run several studios, but was at this time working as an independent producer, and uh, his name was David Picker. And why was he an important person in your life? Well, interestingly, after I'd worked on like Slugger's Wife and Mosquito Coast, I kept thinking, you know, I already had it in my mind. I said, I really want to, I'm going to go to Hollywood. I mean, that was really in my big picture. This is what I know I need to do. And I was poised to sort of just go there and just figure out how I was going to make it work. And then again, I got another call from, thankfully, from the Georgia Film Office and said, there's a producer in town, and if you want to meet him, he's, they're looking to staff up this show. And I go, well, what does he get? They go, it's kind of a small budget independent. And honestly, I thought, okay, I've kind of done a few of those. Maybe I should, maybe now's the time to make this change. And I said, well, who's who am I going to be meeting? And, and they said, well, David Picker. And I said, well, let me look him up. Yeah. And I just have to tell you that at that time, there was no IMDb. <laughs> right. There was no Google. No internet. I literally had to go to the library mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, look him up mm-hmm. and see what he had done. And when I saw the kind that he had run the studios, you know, a few of the studios, and he was, you know, his, his family had been in the film business for years. I go, this is a person I need to meet. Mm-hmm. And I need, you know, let's see what happens. And sure enough, I met him. And again, and he hired me to work again in the production office. But it was a sort of, to me, it was like a fateful meeting because, you know, when I'm meeting these days with students and up in people, so how do you, where do you do? How do you start? Whatever. Mm-hmm. And I said, listen, if you do your job well, people will take notice. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to work with David. He's somebody I need to know. And David was the loveliest mm-hmm. gentleman you could ever even imagine. And you know, smart. And again, it's another person I watch what they did. I mean, he was really, he was an executive, but he was a producer. And it's amazing to note how many people who he mentored have gone on to incredible things, whether it was yourself or Katzenberg, right? Or right. He gave Jeffrey Katzenberg his first 
job in the movies. First Jeffrey. job in the yes. movies. At oh. that, at, on that movie, I just have to say, yeah. um, David's lawyer was Tom Rothman in New York. <laughs> and, and so Tom, that's how I got to meet, you know, know who Tom Rothman yeah. was. And I would, David said, you know, get, get Tom Rothman on the phone. That's amazing. <laughs> and that was his lawyer in New York. That's before Tom, you know, made his and I think transition to the movie business. Also, um, what's the guy, the, the guy who, Larry, Larry Kramer. Larry. Oh, Larry, Larry Kramer. Kramer. He oh, found I didn't, oh, I didn't know that, but also Larry Mark, the producer. Larry Mark, but also Larry Kramer. And then the one that I've just discovered, Cheryl Boone, Isaac's brother, Ashley Boone, started as a trainee under David. So oh, it's no, just, uh, like- uh, and that was at a time where there were not many black people who were being given any opportunity at all. So right, right. David, particularly, I guess, you know, it's amazing that he was so good with women and people of color long before that was... He was very generous about, you know, identifying people. So during that, during that time, interestingly, Columbia Pictures is going to come back in the picture for me, but David was asked, this is when David Putnam Mm -hmm. was asked to, by Columbia Pictures to come and run Columbia Pictures. David Putnam of Chariots of Fire fame Mm -hmm. called David Picker while we were doing Leader of the Band and asked him if he would come basically run the studio. I mean, be the president, Mm -hmm. you know, and David Putnam was going to be the CEO. So David Picker, one day we were talking in the production office and he said, well, Bonnie, what do you what what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to be a producer in Hollywood. And he goes, well, you actually need to come to Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And he said, look, after this movie ends in a couple weeks or whatever it was, I'm going to go to New York and I'm going to move myself back to Hollywood. He goes, if you come to Los Angeles, I will put you to work at the studio. And I just said, you know, I'd figured that was the moment. You know, when somebody says, I'm going to give you something, you know, give you a job. I said, okay, I'm coming. And um, interestingly, so he, you know, leaves and. You know, I guess on some level, sometimes you think, are these people good for their word? (laughs) I mean, you know, should I guess Mm -hmm. I should do this? And I said, well, I'll make it work. And I I think literally he leaves one day. Two days later, he calls me and he calls me and we were wrapping up the show there in Atlanta. And he said, I know I said you, you should come to California. And he said, but I'm telling you, I want you to wait one beat because one of the first movies that we're going to green light is a small movie that David Putnam was producing but we're going to film it in Georgia, and a friend of David Putnam's is going to produce it. His name's Sandy Lieberson. So Sandy's coming to Atlanta day after tomorrow, and I want you to meet him, and I would love for you to stay in Atlanta for a few more months and work on that movie. And interestingly, that movie was Stars and Bars. Mm-hmm. That movie was star. The star of that movie was Daniel Day Lewis. <laughs> at that time, unknown right, to most of America, before. and not even in the Screen Actors Guild. <laughs> I mean, my, one of my first jobs was we need to get Daniel in the Screen Actors Guild <laughs> <laughs> because <laughs> that was part of you know. Have, I mean, he'd done films in Europe, but right. you didn't ha- you didn't necessarily have to be in SAG. Right. But to do a mo- work in a movie he- here in the states, you had to be a part of SAG. So that was my claim to fame that I got to know <laughs> Daniel and I got to get him into SAG right, right. on uh, Stars and Bars. So I worked with Sandy. Pat O'Connor was the director of that movie, small movie, by a really good uh, book author, William Boyd. Um, did that. And David, you know, came to visit us on the set, David Picker, and he said, okay, you know, when this movie's over, I'll see you in my office. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So not long after that movie was over, I would say it was around June. Sure enough, I was ready to go, and I came, you know. This is June 87. June of 87. How'd you get out here? I drove. We drove. (laughs) (laughs) Because you were already married? Yes. Yeah. Had a had a child? No, 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 no. Just to be honest, we drove across country, and um, I like to say I felt like a little bit like the Beverly Hillbillies. You know, you like <laughs> I felt like this 
Well, this, I'd actually been to California before. It's not that I'd never been. I actually came uh, a couple of years before that to kind of look around. And actually, honestly, a college friend of mine was living out here. And I spent a week or so with her and sort of thought, okay, I can, I can do this thing. I, I can live here. <laughs> it's not so bad out It's here. not so bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's not so weird. And um, uh, sure enough, I, I came out and I went to see David. And sure enough, he put me, you know, he connected me with the movie that was actually going to be filmed on the, on the lot, which was actually I'd never worked on a movie, on a movie studio lot. That's the time the Columbia Pictures was, it was Warner Brothers and Columbia Pictures on the Warner Brothers lot. And it was called the Burbank Studios. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was so both Columbia Pictures yeah. that had left to Burbank, yeah. and it was called the Burbank Studios. Wow! And so your job, you did, you weren't now working in like an, in a office building. You were still out working, you know, on sets. Yes, it was on. We were built. The first movie I worked there. Um, God, that's another kind of interesting story. But it was a Ridley Scott movie. And um, we were building, yeah, we were building sets. So we had offices on the on the Burbank Studios lot. Right. And there were, now it's all built up. This was the one that ran along the, uh, I forgot, the road where the cemetery is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Forest Lawn. Yeah. And there were all, tra- all these old trailers back there. Now it's all built up. This was literally the former back lot wow. of Warner Brothers. And it was a bunch of trailers. And it was... You know, there was it was hot as it could be in the winter and freezing cold in the. I mean, <laughs> hot as it could be in the summer and freezing cold in the winter. It was like the worst world working conditions. Yeah, but yeah. hey, I loved it. I'd never, like I said, I'd never worked on a studio lot before. It well, was so really that was Ridley Scott. Then Tony Scott comes in with a movie that 1990 came out, Revenge, which I know was probably even though it's you know it's not necessarily one of his best remembered movies, best known movies, but for you that created two very different trajectories that ended up paying off in a in a very big way in different ways. So can you just explain this is a movie that I think was being made in Mexico. I think it's again with Ray Stark, right, as a right. producer. And just how you ended up involved with it and, and what came out of that one. Well, um, it was another one of those things that um, just to back up for one second and say that after David Putnam and David Picker were, I think, working for about, it was maybe a year, a year and a half at Columbia, you know, politics, whatever was going on, they were out. Yes. So the movie I was working on got shut down. And um, I had been on it for like nine months with Ridley Scott, and it didn't, it did, they shut it down. And that's what happened sometimes. But it, by that time, I had reconnected with Ray Stark, who I had known at, on The Slugger's Wife. And he was based again on the Columbia lot. And he said, oh, you should do this movie with me. We we're going to do this movie. And it's this actor, Kevin Costner, who had just <laughs> done No Way Out and Field of Dreams. I'm mm-hmm. Kevin very much an up-and-coming mm-hmm. actor slash movie star. And I thought, okay, this is very interesting. I, you know, I should meet the people involved. So Ray was the executive producer, and I met the producer, Hunt Lowry. And interestingly, I, I met Kevin and his producing partner, Jim Wilson, and they were associate producers on the movie. Tony Scott was the director. Anyway, it was another one of those things where I just had a good feeling. About it. I said, okay, this is something that's going to be interesting for me. Although I was trying to move up in my career and my position, the studio said, well, here's what we need. You know, it, you'd have to go to Mexico for four or five months or six months. And we need somebody who would sort of really be the, almost like the assistant to producers. There's so many producers, a number of producers, I should say. It was Ray Stark and, the, and Kevin and uh, Jim Wilson and, and uh, Hunt Lowry and a couple other. It was a number of 
high-level creative people. And in a way, it was a little bit of, I consider it a demotion yeah. in a way. I had to, I mean, I think Did I you was, hesitate about saying I, it? I had to say because it was like not that much money. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, it felt like I didn't really want to be an assistant. I mm-hmm. felt like I was sort of beyond that. Yep. But in the end, I guess my judgment was, you know, I, there was something again that told me I should do this based on the people that were involved in it. And I said, okay, for six months, I can do it. I'm going <laughs> to, whatever it takes, I'm going to do it. And it paid off in a great way. I mean, I had developed a good relationship with Kevin Costner and Jim Wilson. They were talking to me about a movie that Kevin was trying to make that he would direct. It'd be for his first directing thing. And they said, well, what do you want to do, Bonnie? I said, well, I want to be a producer. I mean, I kept putting it mm-hmm. out there. I said, somebody's going to take me up mm-hmm. on this. So Kevin and Jim said, you know, if we get our money together, come work with us. We're going to go to South Dakota for like, who knows, six <laughs> months and do this Western. And I don't know, it all at that time, it all sounded very exciting. Yeah. And the other person who was on the show as an actor was uh, Anthony Quinn. Mm-hmm. And he and I, uh, again, a lot of my job was actually supporting the above what they call the above the line, the talent and doing, you know, helping them and whatever. And he told me about a book that he had bought about the last year in the life of Tolstoy, a fictionalized version called The Last Station. And he said, if I ever get this together, he wanted to play Tolstoy. Maybe you could be the producer. And I wasn't a producer then, but I was very flattered that he thought of me in that way. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that that one decision about working on Revenge led to my becoming the associate producer on Dances with Wolves <laughs> with Kevin Costner and Jim Wilson right after Revenge. Right. And actually, I guess it was almost, you know, almost 10 years later through a very, you know, interesting story, I was able to option the book, The Last Station, from Quinn. More than 10 years later, right? Yeah, because I think in 2009, right? right? So this was, this is 89. This was, was yeah, 90, 89, 90. So almost 10 years later, right? Oh, 20 years, right? Oh, 20 years? Oh, God, I can't even... No, I'm thinking, right, because 10 years is 99. At 90, yeah, that's right. Wow. Oh, yeah, because I actually segued into my... Animation yeah, career, right. which that I forgot little, all about. That little that. thing, that little. <laughs> I forgot all about that, that little part. excursion. Was it that long? Wow, it so, was. Yeah, because, Twenty years later, that's right, crazy. So uh, because uh, the last station came out in two thousand and nine. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, so that's go, how I got to Telluride the first time. Was on the okay. Last well, station. we're gonna we're gonna let's, get there. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so then, yeah, Quinn and knowing about the last station and reading this book, and um, that would you know pay off. Yeah. Down the road in an interesting way. Well, so let's talk about Dance yeah. with Wolves, though. It, it only won the Best Picture Oscar. Uh, you had... Coming up on the 30-year anniversary of, of the release of Dance with Wolves. That's crazy. Actually, Yeah, this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first Western that had been really successful in years, not a huge budget. And I know it wasn't easy to raise that budget of $17 million. I think I had read that most of it came from foreign yes. entities. And your job here... For six months in South Dakota, you're you're kind of overseeing a cast and crew and a lot of animals. <laughs> well, I think you know I, I was a you know I I had the associate producer credit, which again was sometimes people say, well, "What does that person do?" But I think on every movie, it's a little bit different. But I like my job was I kind of call it the executive location manager. I mean, there was definitely a regular location manager who was out scouting locations, but I was like the first person in South Dakota. They'd never shot an actual Hollywood movie there. So I went and met with all the government officials in Pierre, which is the capital, and Rapid City, and some of the places that we would be, and try to sort of let them know that the circus was coming to town. (laughs) (laughs) And this is what it was going to take. And we needed their help with, and we didn't have a big budget. We needed their help with security, and we needed their help, 
you know, on different things and renting cars. And, you know, obviously in, in exchange for that, we were going to be pumping a lot of money yeah, into right. the economy. Right. And, you know, how could we get the locals to be helpful and this and that and the other. And so that was some of what, that was some of what, like I was kind of, I would call myself the advanced person, mm-hmm. you know, paving the way for everybody to come to town and say, where could we, you know, where could we, and, and again, it was, it, South Dakota is small. I mean, where do you put all this, this crew? You know, mm-hmm. where does everybody stay? Mm-hmm. How does this work? So they didn't have enough hotels, so we would need to maybe rent some apartments. And all these kind of things that people don't realize in order for this, you know, 150 people in a crew just to land somewhere and start working, everything has to be sorted out yeah. far in advance. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what we need to fly things in. How does that work? And whatever. But um, the first time I ever went there... I flew into Rapid City, which, if you don't know the geography, is on the western side of the state. Mm-hmm. I had to. I drove myself across <laughs> the middle of the. There's one road that goes to Pier, <laughs> which is the capital, and I got in at, in the evening, and it was late, and I was tired. I had been driving and sort of looking for you know housing and kind of doing some things along mm-hmm. the way, and I get to the hotel, the like the main hotel, I think one in Rapid City. And I go in and I check in and I said, you know, I'm Bonnie Arnold, whatever. And they go, oh, you're the Bonnie Arnold or something like that. The hotel said, did you see the sign? I go, what sign? I, did, I didn't really. Yeah. For 20 minutes, he's trying to tell me whatever. So he takes me out to the front. And on the marquee of the hotel, it says, Welcome, Bonnie Arnold. Which I, like, I thought, oh, my God, I've never seen my name in lights like that. But it was, a, it was like the biggest thing yeah. that happened there in such a oh long time. I had the biggest laugh on that. I, so I know funny. I have a picture of that somewhere. Yeah. But funny. anyway, um, the head of the state film, you know, they, they, I guess they quickly appointed somebody to be head of the film thing. <laughs> he met me and we started, you know, things started to move along there. But it was, you know what, it was a pretty amazing experience, I have to say. Well, did I, you... A lot of people doubted that Kevin could sort yeah. of pull it off. But I want to say that it is also not only the, uh, you know, the first Western that was sort of made and, you know, hailed and, you know, really popular at the time. But, you know, the, I think a lot of what Kevin was trying to do at the time was make it feel authentic to mm-hmm. the Native American experience. Yeah. And I think he, I have to say, I think, you know, he and all the people that worked with him were, you know, really did a beautiful job at that. And now, as you say, it would have been almost 30 years later when you're on the Academy's Board of Governors, which we'll talk about, you were able to, I I imagine you were probably involved with this, determining that the Native American actor who really rose to prominence in that movie received an honorary Oscar. And I'm blanking for a moment. Wes Studi. Wes Studi. Yes. Um. I mean, so I, I would think you probably had something to well, do with that. Well, I mean, I definitely chimed in on that. So <laughs> I, 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 you know, there was it definitely was a process, but yeah. it was it's really nice thing for Wes. Yeah. I think that was actually his first really big film role. Yes. Um, you know, and then I ended up working with him again on Last of the Mohicans, but um, nice. he was terrific. I'm I'm really proud of that for him. It's so great. Last of the Mohicans came out in '92. So did the Adams Family, which right. I remember the excitement over that. Which what we didn't know at the time was that. That was probably one of the last big movies where the effects and all of that were not computer generated. And so for somebody who would then shortly thereafter get into a business that was almost entirely computer generated uh, with animation, just what was your experience there and working, I believe, under at that point, a, a young producer named Scott Rudin? Yeah. Who um, has very well-known pros and cons. Well, you know, interestingly, <laughs> Scott is Scott is a really good producer. Mm-hmm. He's really got great taste. He's really smart. 
I mean, I really learned a lot by watching Scott. And I feel like I've been fortunate in that way that I've really worked with some different but interesting producers along the way. And as I feel like I've kind of created my own style, I feel like I'm sure it's a little bit from all these people, everyone from Jerry Hellman to Ray Stark to Scott Rudin. I mean, I just had Saul Zantz. Yeah. And, I mean, just watch what they did and didn't do. And sometimes you learn, sometimes you don't necessarily agree with what they do in your own mind, but I think sometimes you learn and you don't think, oh, that must, you know, whatever, but you learn as much from somebody who you don't think is, uh, you know, makes mistakes as you right. do from what they do well. You know what I'm saying? In terms of, sure. of creating your own style. Interestingly, on Adam's family, it, again, it was all on the, on the studio lot, which, again, mm-hmm. I, I really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. It was at Hollywood Center Studios, which is a historic lot here in Los Angeles. Mae West had a, had a bungalow there. And all that, you know, I love that kind yeah, of old Hollywood yeah. stuff. That was really, and I think um, Desi Lou at one time was there. Mm-hmm. So it was, kind of, it was an interesting place. But Angelica Houston was a part of it, mm-hmm. and Raul Julia. Barry Sonnenfeld was the director very interesting project. Part of what I did on that show, again, I was an associate producer, mm-hmm. was I was responsible for the effects budget, mm-hmm. which again was all at that time, I mean, all the state of the art, but not computer generated, mm-hmm. not CG. Mm-hmm. And I worked very closely with Alan Monroe, who was the head of the creative head of the effects, which create, mm-hmm. I mean, we had like the cousin it and mm-hmm. thing and whatever was, you know, all those different things, uh, you know, uh, Raul Julia supposedly swallowing a sword and all these crazy <laughs> things that right. they would do. And that became interestingly kind of my bona fides for Toy Story 1, believe it or not, because when I went to, I'm jumping ahead a bit, but when I went to talk with Disney, Peter Schneider, who was running animation, he saw that on my resume and he thought, I think they thought at the time because no one had ever done an all computer animated film, mm-hmm. that it would be managed somewhat like an, a big effects movie by the shot. And I thought, and they said, ask me about it. And I go, sure, I can do that. I mean, I didn't know, but <laughs> right. I just had to agree to say, yeah. yeah, I'm sure I can figure it out, you know. Well, the reason you ended up meeting Peter Schneider, though, was not, you, you were not somebody who had a particular desire to get into producing animated films, right? You go to Disney after Adam's Family, just probably, I guess it was Touchstone was their live action side. You were going to be meeting about potential live action producing opportunities there. So what happens then? Yes. And I, you know, and I know when you and I were talking before, actually, it's another woman who really helped me out. I mean, I, I met Sandy Rabins, who was working for Disney at the time. They had Touchstone, Hollywood Pictures, and Buena Vista Pictures. And they were producing different level, budget levels of movies. That was, you know, a lot of things going on. Jeffrey Katzenberg was running the movie studio. And I met with Sandy because, again, they were considering me to sort of be, that's where I had come up through sort of line, moving up through kind of line producing Mm -hmm. one of their, you know, possibly one of these films. And separately, she asked me, are you interested in animation? And I said, well, I don't really know anything about animation. I never really thought of it. And she said, would you consider meeting my colleague in the, in Peter Schneider, who's running animation? Mm-hmm. Again, she asked me what I want to do. I said, I really want to, I want to be a producer. Yeah, yeah. You know, and now I had a couple of really good associate producer credits on both Dances with Wolves and The Addams Family. Mm-hmm. And I said, my next thing is I want to be a producer. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, you know, they're looking for people. That's just what she said. In general, you, you should go meet with him. And I, I kind of went home and thought about it for a minute. I mean, I really, again, I didn't know anything about the craft. But I always thought you just don't, you should take every meeting. Mm-hmm. And I, I went to meet with Peter and he talked to me about, he said, well, there's one project that was called at the time Simba, <laughs> which actually became the Lion King, the animated version. 
And it seemed really interesting. And I would be had we'd be working. There was a producer on that with Don Hahn, a very mm-hmm. well known and terrific animation producer who I was a colleague now and I really admire and adore. Mm -hmm. But he said, but then there's this other little movie that we're doing. And I said, well, can I be the producer on that? (laughs) And I thought, and I said, I've been there. I didn't, I didn't know really anything about it. He said, well, he said, well, we're going to do it with this little company up in Northern California. And it just so happens that the director is going to be here tomorrow. Um, It's going to be all computer animated. And I, you know, and and Peter said, I thought you maybe your background you know, having worked on the Adams family, maybe you would have a, a feel for this. Mm-hmm. He said, although, you know, and I, again, I didn't know any better. Mm-hmm. I just said, I, oh, sure. You yeah, know, yeah. yeah, sure, sure, sure. And, uh, and uh, interestingly, I think it, I, he may have told me even in that first meeting that we're going to make the movie. I think the, but I may have asked, what's the budget of the mm-hmm. movie? And, and he told me literally $17 million. And I thought, well, that's the same money that we had for dances I, I, with wolves. I, I'm sure I can do that to myself. I'm, I'm saying that. Little did I know. Right. So I came back the next day and I met John and he and this I. This is John Lasseter. John Lasseter, the John Lasseter, <laughs> yeah, right. you know, uh, who came in in his, you know, usual Hawaiian shirt and pair of jeans. <laughs> and we had this great, like literally like about a two hour conversation. I mean, we're very close in age. And honestly, we talked about. TV shows that we like growing up. I mean, everything from Gilligan's Island mm-hmm. to you name it, and just things that we had in common. And it's interesting, you know, years late, you know, maybe at the end, not years later, but after I spent four years on, ended up spending four years on Toy Story. Mm-hmm. And I asked them at one point, you know, why did you guys choose me? I mean, basically, Disney did not own Pixar at the mm-hmm. time, but Disney was going to wholly finance this movie. Mm-hmm. And one of the stipulations was to find a producer. That would so I had you know Disney was asking me to be a part of it and actually to oversee that mm-hmm. money and approve all the money for the movie you know as it yeah. got spent and all this kind of thing, but I would work at Pixar and really be part of Pixar even though I was yeah. sort of the, the quote the Disney producer, right. and they said they looked far and wide but I think find be, somebody that would be suitable to both right that somebody yeah. could be they had to agree on somebody that could come up and yeah. you know kind of be embedded right, right. <laughs> at Pixar and work with them, and they told you know the Pixar folks said well you know you fit that bill the best. And I think at the end of the day, that was what was important to more than anything, somebody that could kind of fit into that environment, which was super fun. So this was the beginning of your unexpected career in animation. But what I think we have to point out is how close it came to not happening at all, right? Because when they first brought up Simba, what we didn't say is that they were not, they were saying, we don't have a producer job for you. Do you want to be Associate, Associate producer, producer right? right? And you said no to Disney, no to to this job, uh-huh. which obviously Lion King became a, a huge thing. Right. But then with even Toy Story, it wasn't an immediate yes. And so what I the reason correct me if any of this is wrong, but what I had read was that you first saw a concept reel that kind of maybe sold you on that this was worth getting involved with, but also that you had another conversation with David Picker. So what what had to happen for you to agree to do Toy Story? Well, they, they you know, I did tell them that I was interested in being the producer. They offered me an associate producer job, of course, because that, in their mind, that in, in, in the animation world, that was the person that, again, sort of managed the budget and all those, you know, all those things. And that was sort of really my job to manage the budget and oversee the production and make sure the movie got delivered. And I was actually, again, working on something over at Columbia Pictures. And I said, well, I'm working at the moment. I'd have to, you know, I'm not supposed to be done with this until 
like the middle of the year. And I don't know, I was kind of hemming and hawing about leaving some, you know, something in the middle. And I said, but I'm interested in that credit because when they asked me to commit to animation, the animation projects, you know, they told me up front, this is a two or three year commitment. Mm -hmm. And I thought from a strategic point of view for my career, why would I want to spend another three years being associate producer Mm -hmm. when I have, I mean, Dances with Wolves was a really good credit as well as the Adams family. And I said, I'm, I I know I can find, I'm going to find this, I'm going to hold out for this Mm -hmm. job that I want at that point in my life. And they said, well, we're not ready to go anyway. I mean, they're not, they weren't quite ready to green light it or proceed forward. So I said, you know, it was more like one of those conversations, let's keep in touch. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was a good meeting and all that went well, but we're just starting the process. Mm -hmm. And I believe, I'm honestly trying to remember if I actually saw, I don't, so no, I didn't because, oh, I think Peter had told me they're working on a test, Mm -hmm. like a proof of concept Mm -hmm. test. Mm -hmm. This would have been about around December of, I think, 91, mm-hmm. literally, I believe it was literally out of the blue, six months later, I get a call from Peter Schneider, calls me back. And I had finished this Columbia job. And honestly, I was looking for another, you know, I was looking, I was doing some budgets or something, you know, but not working on a, on a show. Uh-huh. And he said, you know, I think we're going to move ahead on this movie on Toy Story, what was called Toy Story at the time. And would you reconsider doing this. I mean, I really didn't turn him down. I just said I wasn't ready that, you know, it wasn't the timing. He goes, come back in. I want to show you some things and let's talk again. And that's, they had been working on this test. It was, it's in the DVD extras. It's Buzz and Woody, the the early models of Buzz and Woody Mm -hmm. sitting on a toy chest in Andy's room talking. And it wasn't the final voices or anything. It wasn't Tom and Tim, Tom Hanks and Tim Allen, Mm -hmm. some other voices. But I looked at that test and in a, in a flash, it reminded me of a test in a different way that I had seen that we had done on Dances with Wolves early. We'd done some camera tests. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I saw the camera test on Dances with Wolves, even though I was already in it and on it, I said, this is going to be a different movie. People mm-hmm. are going to be amazed at the way this looks and the way the Native Americans are portrayed. And I know there was something about it. I just had this feeling about it. And I had that same feeling when I saw this test of Buzz and Woody that Peter showed me, and I thought, this is going to, this is, re- no matter what, this mm-hmm. is going to be different. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be the first computer animated movie. And again, it was one of those gut feelings. I said, I, 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 didn't, I didn't necessarily think it was going to be a huge success, but I, said, I need to be a part of this in some way. And what was the David Picker call? And so I called David Picker. I told, oh, and then I said again, I want to be the producer and to <laughs> Peter. And he said, well, I think, you know what, what if we might be able to offer you, I mean, there's a producer at Pixar, mm-hmm. but you, you know, we could offer you that credit. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I called my mentor, David Picker. Yep. I said, David. And, and on the one hand, I thought, okay, I'd have to leave Los Angeles mm-hmm. for a, you know, a couple of years, honestly, to go to Northern California, mm-hmm. about the San Francisco area where they were. And I told David the whole thing. I said, I don't know. I said, I'm on this trajectory. I know I'm going to, you know, I'm, wanna, I'm trying to, I'm ambitious about mm-hmm. moving my career forward, but I'm going to get a produced by credit mm-hmm. on a, you know, a studio movie. It's an animation, but it's going to take it's going to take at least a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And he's and he just kind of paused for a minute. And he goes, well, who wouldn't want to be on location in San Francisco? <laughs> <laughs> so that was my message to are you nuts? You've got to do this. It, yeah. um, <laughs> I mean, I was leaning toward that anyway, but it was nice to have David sort of reassure yeah. me that, like, you know, go for it. This is the thing to do. And I mean, it just it didn't give you or them pause that you had not had any experience in animation. 
I think the great thing that, you know, they, we had Disney, we had Pixar, they had so much animation experience, but they needed somebody over the, up there that had made a movie and mm-hmm. I had made a movie and they had never made a feature and there was just a different mindset yeah. and I had worked with studio before. Right. And I think part, I think those two things were really, I was more, sort of almost like the missing puzzle piece. Any uh, memory of your first day at Pixar? Yeah, I went to Pixar and I was like, um, they showed me my office and I was slightly, uh, you know, I freaked out a little bit because I, I go, where is the typewriter? <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't do my job without a typewriter in my office. And they kind of looked at me and they laughed and they said, you know what? They showed me this little, this, I think, and I still have it. I mean, it was like the first generation MacBook <laughs> and that we're going to teach you yeah. how, how, to, how use- to use this computer. <laughs> and I said, well, that's, that's, we're even then because I'm going to show you guys how to make a movie and you're going to show me how to use a computer. Right. So we were sort of even on your way. Well, so just one last Toy Story thing is that, you know, you're, you're in the middle of this thing for years, as you said, working on it. And I think that sometimes you need an outsider perspective to know what you have. And it seems like that was the, for you guys, there was something like that. That was the first realization that, wait a minute, well, people are going to go nuts for this. What was, what brought that realization about? I believe it was about, a, it might've been about a year before the movie came out, maybe a little less than that. Disney was going to partner with Burger King. Mm-hmm. On some pro, you know, toys mm-hmm. like the happy. I call it Happy Meal. That's yeah, McDonald's, yeah. <laughs> but whatever, whatever the Burger right, King, right, God bless yeah. version of that was, and they were going to come up and see some pieces of the movie, and you know, and, and honestly, you have to start way ahead of that because it takes them a while to manufacture mm-hmm, these things, mm-hmm. and they were going to be the promotional partners. So honestly, they were the first sort of outside people, other than Peter Schneider and people at Feature Animation and Michael Eisner, to see a lot of the finished animation for Toy Story and they freaked out. <laughs> I mean in a good way. Yeah. They thought this is going to be amazing. Mm-hmm. This is just the most amazing thing we've never seen anything quite like mm-hmm. it. So we all looked at each other and said, "Wow." Cuz you didn't think it <laughs> well, was Well, it you know, we thought it was, you know, so good, mm-hmm. but I mean, I we just didn't realize it was going to make that pe- you know, again, to the outside world. I mean, again, it's just you're, you're so mi- you know, at the micro right. that you don't realize I think the how people were really going to react. Wow. Well, the reaction was, of course, 25 years ago, big, big hit and critically acclaimed, commercially successful. And at a time before there was a Best Animated Feature Oscar even in existence, special Oscar was given to to this one. And I guess it wasn't there wasn't a category until the third one came along, but Mm -hmm. the second one probably would have won it as well. But meanwhile, you, having spent all these years with Pixar up in Northern California, I guess you want to get back to town and have an opportunity to do that for with Disney for Tarzan? Well, yeah. Um, I mean, honestly, John and the team asked me if I would when it was interested in staying at Pixar. But because they did so much focus on, their, on Toy Story 1, it took a lot of effort. Mm-hmm. There wasn't really a plan yeah. for another movie. <laughs> it took a while to sort of regroup after that, to be honest. Yeah. And, I, and I have to say, at that time, I enjoyed it. I loved it. I love the people up there. But my dream, my sort of, you know, real dream was when I lived in Atlanta and whatever, I wanted to work in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And I kind of was missing that. Mm -hmm. And I had sort of established this, you know, friends and and work thing in in Los Angeles. And I missed that. Mm -hmm. I I really did. Mm -hmm. And so I thought maybe that I would, and that was sort of right at the cusp of 
you know, the sort of the CG revolution and, you know, and how that was going to work, you know, if they're going to be hybrid movies. Are they gonna be? And so I went and went back to Columbia Pictures where I, you know, kind of had a lot of experience and they were thinking of doing something in the animation space and other places. But Toy Story being successful and whatever, they, you know, sort of asked me to stay there. And, and, and as a producer, I think at the end of the day, it's about the project. Mm-hmm. And they pitched me the idea of being a part of Disney's Tarzan, Mm -hmm. which I had to say, as a kid, I watched all the Johnny Weissmuller Mm -hmm. movies. I was a big fan of Tarzan. Mm -hmm. And um, they had already talked to Phil Collins about doing the music. And again, that was another element that I thought was so Mm -hmm. interesting in terms of working with him as an artist. And I met the the two directors, excuse me, um, Kevin Lehman, Chris Buck. And we had talked before, but I feel like that Toy Story had helped me sort of make that transition to be more a part of the creative vision of the movie. And when I was talking with Kevin and Chris, I felt very confident that I would be very much included in that creative, you know, in the creative conversations. Not only was it my job to sort of, you know, make sure that the movie could get delivered, but to help them see their vision through, but also be very much a part of the conversation about how creatively are we best going to achieve this and and partner with them? And I thought that was an important, another important step in my career in yeah. terms of following up on what had started to happen, you know, with John and the team at Pixar. So Tarzan came out in 99, Toy Story came out in 95. Even before Toy Story came out and, and changed everything, the guy who had sort of brought you, I guess, who was running the show at Disney when you were over there was Jeffrey Katzberg. He then in 94 famously leaves with Spielberg and Geffen to start DreamWorks. His focus is going to be animation there. And that ends up mattering to your career because I guess you had known him at Disney, but how did you wind up ending up working with him at DreamWorks? I met him during the production of Toy Story. And didn't know him all that well, but he would, you know, would visit with us and, and, and look at, you know, the movie. And again, left um, Disney about a year before the movie actually came out. And the movie was, um, and the Toy Story was a big hit, but he had started DreamWorks. And not too long after Toy Story was done, or actually almost right before it was done, I think, I, I think maybe the day that Toy Story was released and it did so well, <laughs> the first person who called me to congratulate me was Jeffrey Katzenberg. He's great at that. Yeah, yeah. And I was very flattered. And so he, you know, taught, we ended up meeting and he talked to me about possibly coming to DreamWorks, the, you know, the company had just started. But um, I was, you know, already talking about, talking to the Disney about Tarzan. And again, it was about the movie. I, I really was in love with the idea of doing Tarzan. So I, you know, turned Jeffrey down in terms of, you know, coming over there at that moment. But Jeffrey's really persistent. <laughs> <laughs> so after Tarzan was over, he called me again and we got together and uh, convinced me to come work with him at, at DreamWorks. And the first thing there was? Over the Hedge. Over the Hedge. Over the Hedge, which was a project that was already up and going, but that needed, a, you know, a producer to come in and really shepherd that to the, to the finish. Just to go backwards for one second, just so, uh, at, meanwhile, this Toy Story thing that you had started is continuing along to the point where here we are 25 years later, and one of your fellow nominees at the Oscars is Toy Story 4, but Toy Story 3 has a character by the name of Bonnie, and I wonder if that is purely coincidental. I like to think that, you know, maybe in part that she was named in part, but you know, in honor of me. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I, I'm, I'm happy just thinking that. Okay. I, don't, I, don't, I don't have to be dissuaded that, <laughs> that it's not. So Right. Okay, so meanwhile, now you get through Over the Hedge at DreamWorks, and I guess the arrangement at DreamWorks was that you could also do other... Was it ever totally exclusive or you could always do other things if you wanted to? Well, it was definitely exclusive for um, animation and it did take almost all of my time. But I, uh, again, rewinding a little bit to the Anthony Quinn thing, I had decided to option the Last Station book from Anthony Quinn because he had honestly was never able to really get it set up with him playing Tolstoy because of his... You know, he was really at that point of retiring from acting and stuff. And I just love that. I really love the story. Mm-hmm. But I had what they call a little carve out in my deal mm-hmm. with DreamWorks that if I was ever, ever able to get, in particular, this project, which mm-hmm. was a live action movie going, that I would have some kind of be able to negotiate some way to have some kind of involvement. I mean, I might not could be the producer, but maybe I could be, again, an executive producer mm-hmm. or something that I didn't have to my first priority and my full-time attention would have to be at, at, at DreamWorks mm-hmm. because um, when you work in the animation, you really, you're a, you really are an employee of the, of the, of the company. Yeah. I mean, for a while it was Disney, I think eight years at Disney. Mm-hmm. And when I, you know, in the end, almost 18 years at yeah. DreamWorks, kind of wild, but yeah. you wear both hats. You're a producer, but you're also, you have kind of an executive role yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, even as a producer, yeah. you're very much involved because it's small and, you know, they, you're creatively, you have creative input into a little bit of everything. So that ends up becoming The Last Station, which, uh, as you say, brings you to Telluride, later brings Helen Marin and Christopher Plummer to the Oscars with nominations. I mean, this thing that Anthony Quinn, sadly, was long gone, but this right. was your keeping a toe in live action stuff. Right. And then the year after that comes out is the release of a movie called How to Train Your Dragon. Which, just to remind folks, we've got these two characters, Hiccup and Toothless, who originated in Cressida Cowell's book series, which was brought to the attention of DreamWorks by who? The book was actually discovered at a book fair by Chris Kuzer, who was a colleague there, who was in our development group. And when he first brought it to DreamWorks, I think that was probably, I'm going to say around maybe 2004, maybe, mm-hmm. or 2005, maybe four. And we were a small group. It was just like there were three producers and not very, and we would all look over all the, you know, some of the books coming in that would, could be, ba- you know, we could make movies based on. And I immediately loved that book. I was in the middle of over, doing Over the Hedge. Mm-hmm. And they were going to try to get a script written. And I just kind of kept my eye on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think about six months before the end of Over the Hedge, I was, one Saturday, I was in the office and Jeffrey was there working and I walked by and he said, oh, come in. And we were started talking. He goes, well, what do you think you might want to do next after Over the Hedge is done and delivered? And I, and I said, well, there's this little book, you know, that we have that, you know, How to Train Your Dragon. And there's just something about it. I just, I've never seen anything quite like it in animation. I think it's special. I think it's got great characters. It's a great, you know, great story or the basis of a great story. And I'd love to be involved in that. And I know you're trying to move forward on that. And I probably couldn't even start for six months. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, don't worry, we'll wait on you. Wow. So I thought that was... Was he even familiar with the property at that he point? He did. Yeah. He did. He did. I think he was a little... I mean, in the beginning, he was a little nervous that it was, you know, it was about this little boy. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he felt like we, we were still trying to define what a, a DreamWorks movie was. Mm-hmm. 
But I think enough of us convinced him that there was a real something really special and a real you know uh, movie story to be had. I think Cressida Cowell, the book author, she creates these terrific characters and beautiful worlds. But she's a you know she's a book author, and this was like a picture book, and there wasn't really a movie story there. And it took us a while to figure out what that was. And finally, with the help of Chris Sanders and Dean Deblois, we came up with this movie story that involved actually making Toothless a, a big fierce dragon instead of a little runt dragon, mm-hmm. which was an interesting change, but I think really redirected the course of those of those movies. And also that the dragons and Vikings were enemies as opposed to the dragons being the, the yes. servants of exactly. the... Exactly. They were part of that. They were, you know, it, it was a little, you know, there were some dragons that were friendly with the Vikings and some that were sort of the enemies. It was a little, but we sort of separated that and made it a little bit more of an origin story that this would, Hiccup would be the first Viking to actually befriend a dragon. Now, and uh, that started that, you know, story off. That, I think, that transition necessitated a, a couple of tough conversations on your part. For one, you obviously had to I think to brief Cressida Cal about that, but also I believe that there was another aspect of the producer's job sometimes that you had to, it's not fun, but you had to deal with, which was, you know, Dean and, and Chris were not the original directors. Right, right. So what are those kinds of conversations like? Well, those are, I mean, you know, listen, as you're trying to sort of discover what the, what the movie is I think it's about sort of casting, you know, all, all along the way. And and sometimes it's really trying to find the right directors with the right vision of what the movie, again, what the movie could be that could suit what the goals of the studio are. And listen, that's happened in different ways all along my career. I think you there are a lot of times that sometimes the casting is not right in different ways. Mm-hmm. It could be It could be directors. It could be cinematographers. It could be editors. I mean, sometimes you have to make the hard, tough decisions about who the right people are. Sometimes the people that start it aren't necessarily the people that finish mm-hmm. it. And, that's an, and that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. It's just mm-hmm. that sometimes the direction may change or the creative, you know, something may change creatively or otherwise to say that you need a different, you know, person in a different role to make that happen. So those are always challenging. But in the end of the day, you have to just have it, you know, have, first of all, always had support from Jeffrey mm-hmm. Katzenberg and Bill Damaschke, who was who was our head of creative mm-hmm. for the studio. And, you know, we were a team trying mm-hmm. to figure out how, you know, how are we best going to realize this and who are the best people to pull it off. So. so when that first one was received so well by every kind of constituency, had you already been contemplating additional ones or was it only because you had a hit that now you've got to start thinking, wait, we've got a brand, we've got to build on this? Well, how did that how did that happen? You know, obviously you want something. If, if something is successful, it begs the question. But definitely it was a number of maybe six months or so before the first one came out. We definitely had that conversation. Mm-hmm. Like, what if, if if this does well and people respond to it, should we do? You know, and, and, and at that point, Cressida was actually writing more books mm-hmm. in the series. and what, how, But we had sort of departed from her story right. in a way. Chris Sanders had originally come to DreamWorks to actually do a movie called The Crudes, which had got put on hold, mm-hmm. so he had come help on Dragon. And he really wanted to go back to that. But Dean Deblois was very interested in staying, and he and I talked about it, and he thought about it. And his he wanted to stay and be a part of it, but his thought was, you know, it would be interesting not just to do the continuing adventures mm-hmm. of Hiccup and Toothless, mm-hmm. but what if we really made it an arc and a trilogy 
and he had an idea for a second and third movie that would be really the coming of age of Hiccup and Toothless. Which comes with some complications for the rest of you guys, right? In the sense that the characters are not staying the same age, the same level of sophistication. It's not a small decision to have time progress in the story, right? That was a big deal for animation, to be honest. I yeah. mean, that was part of his pitch, that between movie one and two would be a five-year age gap. Mm-hmm. I mean, Hiccup would age five years, and certain things would have happened, and he comes back, you know, a little bit, you know, wiser, a little bit more heroic, mm-hmm. but still in his, you know, learning curve of be- ultimately going to become somehow the chief of the tribe mm-hmm. of Burke. And, and and again, Toothless be sort of the same, that mm-hmm. he had, you know, realized that he was sort of this unique dragon and he was leading the dragon. So one f- great thought that we had at the time was that we would actually film the two movies, second and third film that would happen pretty much in the timeline, close together in the in time, mm-hmm. together, like they do sometimes yeah. in live action. Yeah. But it it proved trickier than we thought in animation in terms of a crew and how much it was over more complicated than we thought. And I think one of the mandates for that Jeffrey told us or asked us or, you know, discussed with us, I should say, is that he felt like just like let's just make sure we know we're gonna do two and three and mm-hmm. they that was got blessed by the studio, so to speak. But let's make sure that each one is satisfying in and of itself. In terms of the story. In terms of the storytelling. So you don't, know, don't, hold don't, stuff don't leave back. a big yeah. cliffhanger because again, just because the nature of it, it may be a few years yeah. between it could be a year, it could be whatever. It happened there was another big gap between two and three for various reasons, mm-hmm. some of which was you know, uh DreamWorks was sold to Universal mm-hmm. and interestingly the first movie was our distribution partner was Paramount. The second movie, our distribution partner was Fox. The third movie was Universal. Oh so even though our, even our, our core yeah. creative crew yeah. was the same yeah. over a decade right. for the three movies, it, it, there was a lot of changes yeah. in those kind of things. And we've weathered that over over three films. So it's kind of... And I feel like the nice thing is, though, it feels like it's consistent. It does feel like it's of a story of this friendship between these yeah. two characters and over time and... And, and we thought really early, I'm so proud that we really thought early about this ending that we have at the end of How to Train Your Dragon, Hidden World, the latest mm-hmm. movie of Hiccup and Toothless, and they would part, mm-hmm. and it would be bittersweet. But and, 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 I, and I feel like it really, you know, it paid works. off, yeah. and it worked, and, um, and the fact that he would go back years later and try to find Toothless and reunite with him, and it's all very heartfelt, yeah. and kind of, it ended up, you know, on a, on a note that we were happy about, proud of. Well... Another thing that happened in between two and three is that you became a, not just a producer at DreamWorks, but along with Marie Soria, co-presidents of the company, then this was in January 2015. She stayed in that position until 2016, you through 2017. Mm -hmm. How did that come about and what were your considerations in terms of deciding whether or not to say yes to Jeffrey? Yes, he asked me to, you know, I feel like, you know, a little bit like Uncle Sam with our, you know, he's sort of like <laughs> drafted into, yeah. we need your help. And um, this is something, you know, Murray was a colleague of mine there and Jeffrey and Bill DeMashi, you know, Bill DeMashi was going to be leaving mm-hmm. and, 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 and Daly and Jeffrey had asked Murray and I to come take on this role. I think part of it was I was committed, obviously, to really wanting to be a part of the third Dragon movie. And that was Dean was writing it, and it was in, you know, sort of, again, we had finished Dragon 2, mm-hmm. and it was going to take a bit. And I said, well, I don't know, how, I'm not sure how we're going to do this. But, and I think that's part of the reason to share the role with Marae, that she was also involved in 
Madagascar. She was the franchise producer. So we sort of agreed that we would still have oversight. Of that was our, a prerequisite for you yeah, saying. Of yeah, of our franchise, of our sort of our franchise films. And that we would creatively oversee the slate of movies that were in development and try to bring some new things in. You know, in, it was during that period that Jeffrey decided to sell the company. Mm-hmm. And so it was a lot of, a lot of changes came about. And so I felt like. Did you like, like being the kind of co or then eventually solo top dog there? You know, I, you know, I, 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 um, I enjoyed it. I learned a lot. I liked working more closely with a lot of my, the other filmmakers, my other colleagues there on some of their projects to help them mm-hmm. bring them to the screen. But I have to admit, I, I miss being, a, you know, a producer. Mm-hmm. That was the job I always wanted. I was doing my dream job, and I kind of miss that. And uh, that's what I really love. But I, but I met a lot of interesting people. I learned a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. By again, as a as a long time sort of an employee at both Disney and and DreamWorks, I always had sort of an ex, a little bit of an executive mm-hmm. role. Mm-hmm. But this was more. <laughs> well, and at a time when, you know, there have been very few women who have been the top person at a, at a studio. So that right. was... It's a lot of, it was a lot of responsibility. People yeah. look to you for a lot. And yeah. I think, especially during the transition in the purchase to, uh, by Universal, mm-hmm. people sort of looked to me. And it was a, a big change for yeah. a, a place that was, honestly, a, it was a good-sized company, but was sort of a mom-and-pop place for quite a long time. Yeah. And all the changes that would come about because of that. So, again, I, I learned a lot, and um, I'm glad I did it. But, like I say, my true love is being a producer. So with our last minute, first of all, you know, as someone who for so many years was specifically associated with Georgia Film Production, I now go down there every year for the Savannah Film Festival. I, I see the numbers of people who work in production and and then in associated things like film festivals and whatever. There's this... I forget what the the kind of name of the law is, but there's this law that has really jeopardized those people's jobs in Georgia because Hollywood will boycott, has threatened to boycott if it should it take effect. It's to do with, uh, I guess, a, abortion. Mm-hmm. What's the solution there? How do how do we save the Georgia film industry from being decimated? Should you know, their governor insists on going forward with this. Oh, gosh. I'm sure it's, a, you know, I'm, I'm unfortunately I've lost a little. I mean, I still have connections there, but I, I don't keep up completely with what's going on in the film business. I know that they have a lot of work there, mm-hmm. but that's a, that's a tough one. I think, you know, I think some of the companies have to here have to decide, are they going to work there and, you know, with their politics or, or in spite of it, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's interesting how that affects that. I, I wish I had a good answer, but I, I don't. In May 2018, you were elected to the Board of Governors of the Academy, representing the short films and feature animation branch. That's a very big deal. It's sort of the student government of Hollywood. What made you run? And would you, having now been there for a while, ever be willing to be drafted to run for president? Oh, gosh, that's a big question. I mean, I did it because I felt like that was a way that I could give back, actually. I I served on a couple of other boards on the Producers Guild and actually for a year on the BAFTA board. And I was in, I was, had always been involved in the academy, on some, uh, first in the producer's branch, and then I segued into the feature animation branch, short films and feature animation. But I just felt like, th- I, I, I felt like that was where I could give back. I, I, again, having some executive chops, and our branch was getting bigger, 
that it, that I that I had a lot to offer there. And this year, I actually took on the job. I'm an officer um, as well. Yes. And so, um, again, I, I so love the, the the movie business. I so love our industry. I felt like that's where all of all of us meet. I feel like more and more that the community looks to the academy for you know guidance on how do we move forward in this all this time of change. And I like being a part of that. I don't know. I'll have to see. I think we have a really good president. Uh, this year, David Rubin. I'm working very closely with him. I'm learning a lot from him, and um, and I definitely am enjoying it a lot. So maybe there's there maybe there could be some more interesting things in the future. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> and lastly, you know, 25 years after Toy Story was released, but probably closer to 30 years since you started working on it. Does it surprise even you that you have spent the majority of your career working in animation and then? Part B to that is, what's next? I actually, you know, I really, I didn't really think I would spend this long, honestly, working in animation. It just, it went by all so fast. But I, what I love about animation is it just, you know, this and, and fa- you know, animation and family films, I have to say, it affects so many young people, these movies, honestly. And I think it's so gratifying for me to hear and talk to kids who, saw the first How to Train Your Dragon when they were 9 and 10, who are now, you know, 18, 19, 20, and they've decided to pursue a career in animation. And they tell me that it's because they were so inspired by the first or the second dragon film or Toy Story or something else. So I feel like being a, you know, being a parent that, I don't know, that has that spe- touches a special place in my heart. That's not to say that other live-action films can't, but definitely animation, animated films uh, of, of this type of really affect kids in a big way. And that, like I say, that gives me such, you know, sense of satisfaction about my career. Yeah. I don't, what's next? Um, you know, I still love that this is sort of my, I guess, the family area and animation is my wheelhouse. I definitely love movies a little bit more sometimes like The Last Station. So I always have my eye out for just that type of thing. But I feel like, you know, there's a little bit more to be done in that world. And I, and I especially am interested in bringing up and maybe mentoring some up-and-coming producers, directors that are sort of going to ultimately, you know, take the place of myself and some of the people that have worked alongside me for a long time. It's time for a new generation of filmmakers to come along and do some amazing things. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Group. 
void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.